whatever's in my heart. Welcome to Dancing on Desks. I'm Monet. I'm Erin. And we're back from rest. Welcome back to our third season, our fourth episode, a season of pleasure, where we're thinking about how might our personal rest and pleasure practices sustain our collective liberation? How are our rest and pleasure connected to education as the practice of freedom? We've spoken with educators and former educators, parents and caregivers and writers. And, 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 and. (laughs) (laughs) About how they're practicing pleasure and rest. In this episode, we're learning with young people and educators about pleasure and how pleasure helps us access the liberation already available to us. How might pleasure allow us to focus our energies on the classroom as a place of what Bell Hooks calls radical possibility? As we still join with those who believe in freedom, saying free Palestine, free Sudan, and free Congo, free ourselves on this stolen land, We know that the spaces we as educators co-create with young people are sacred ones, ones where the classroom is a place where youth and adults can build power together to learn the histories that have been denied to us, wonder together in ideas and questions, and hold space for discussions that allow for mutual accountability. We are clear, sites of education, sites of learning are indeed sites of pleasure. And so it's no coincidence in Palestine that the formal spaces of learning, schools, libraries, archives, and universities have been targeted by the Israeli military. Destroying the cultural homes where learning happens is a tool of genocide. According to the Palestine Ministry of Education, 281 state-run schools and 65 schools in Gaza run by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East have been partially or completely destroyed. 90% of state-run schools have been damaged. Schools can be homes of culture, of knowledge, of learning, of community, friendship, and becoming. And damn, if those aren't important sources of pleasure. We are witnessing a genocide. And this genocide has marked the spaces where Palestinians learn as dangerous to the Israeli state. Which brings us back to Paulo Freire, who writes, any situation in which some men prevent others from engaging in the process of inquiry is one of violence. So we invite you to wonder with us today, bringing your anger at the brutality happening here and abroad, your frustration at the ways our tax dollars are being used to fund this genocide, and your brilliance to think about learning as pleasure, and specifically how adults and youth in classrooms can move together. If we say pleasure happens in the classroom, what does this look and sound like? And how do we think about and do pleasure on stolen land? Or as Saul Williams reminds us, outside of the concentration camp. In this episode, we're in conversation with Alea and Kyrie and Baylul and Jill, young people and professors at the Early College Academy program, or ECA, with Coolidge High School. These are high school students who are duly enrolled at Trinity University in Washington, D.C. They're thinking with us about the pleasures that come with learning in community. So we did this interview in December as you and I were about to go on rest, Erin. Right. And as Alea and Kyrie and their professors, Jill and Baylol, were entering their winter break. Um, We were headed there, too. We were ready to be there. Um. What else? You'll hear Kyrie first, then Alea. 
Hi, I'm Kyrie. I am an ECA senior um, from Calvin Coolidge. I'm also a pet owner. My dog's name is Midnight. He's a Pomeranian Yorkie. And a little thing I like to do out of, out of school is play games and enjoy my family. Oh, and my pronouns are he, him. My name is Alea. I'm also a senior at ECA from Coolidge. I'm the captain of the cheer team at Coolidge Varsity Team. My name is Bailey Russo, and I go by she, her pronouns. What I like to call myself is a nouveau tech specialist. I'm trying to do all the things related to tech, related to algorithms, but how it affects young people. So nouveau tech specialist is just the kind of title I give myself. I'm Jill, and I have the distinct pleasure of having been gifted the opportunity to teach the ECA every fall for their college composition class. And I, I'm not saying it just because you all are here. The students in the class are among my best students at Trinity, and it's always, it's been one of my favorite classes to teach. We should set the stage for a minute, right? Yeah, Alea and Kyrie spent ninth and 10th grade at Coolidge High School, moving through a year of high school in each semester. Their first year was virtual due to the coronavirus pandemic, and their second year was in person at Coolidge. During their last two years of high school, they've been attending classes at Trinity full-time and will graduate this spring, so just a few months, with a high school diploma and an associate's degree. We're actually the second class of Coolidge that would complete this program. So since they were the first class, I don't want to say they was the experimental class, but like, they were our pedals too. So everything that went wrong for them, it was fixed for us. So when we talk to them, they just tell us like, that's not fair. That's not fair y'all got that. Or like for this break, how we get the month break, they weren't able to do that because they were trying to figure everything out. I guess some of their challenges, it kind of made it seem like we had it easier. So it was kind of a little bit more difficult to, 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 to say that we have challenges as well or to like slack off when they their challenges might have been a little bit more advanced. As she said, it gave us a little bit more inspiration. In their last year of study, things are different. Their first three years in the program, they've grown close, sharing classrooms, lunch hours, and downtime. Now as seniors, things have changed. They may be in classes where they are the only student from their ECA cohort. Now this year, you are kind of by yourself unless you are enrolled in a class with another ECA peer. And the work requires stretches, but this is where Kyrie, Alea, and other youth in the program lean into community and on each other, checking in to see how a peer is doing, offering encouragement that will take them not just to the end of semester or to graduation, but allowing them to hold on to the current of what they dream for themselves. And I took introductory to forensic science and it was a little bit more challenging because we weren't really sure of what we were getting ourselves into when we enrolled in class. But we got through it by relying on our peers and making sure we understand what the teacher is asking and stuff like that. Yeah, I agree with Kyrie about the our classmates. My class from Coolidge, we literally been the same class since them virtual days. We got to learn them literally they mad days, they happy days. We could tell when they're in the mood to learn, when they engage, like we know each other off the back of our hands. So I really get a little emotional knowing that next year 
some of us are really going to different schools and we really will not be in the same class at all. And it's kind of a little bit sad. Even though all of us are not friends or the best of friends, we still been our class. Like, I'd probably be one of those alumni that get very offensive if they try to bring up my class to 2024 because, no, that was my class. We stuck together. But in my opinion, what this opportunity has given us that set us different from everyone else, I say it given us the knowledge. Our work levels are still as to be as a college student at Trinity. And not only has they given us the knowledge, they also gave us that experience. So now, whether if I decide to stay at Trinity for my last two years or go somewhere else, I'm already set for it than anyone else in my class. For instance, when I said that I'm working hard now and when I get older, I can sit back, my ultimate goal in life is to be a lawyer. If I decide to stay at Trinity or to transfer my credits that I received from Trinity, I will only have to do two more years in college, and then I will be able to go into law school. So I believe that this experience, it benefited us in numerous ways. We all share the same goal. We all had the same mindset, and that's really to be successful. Even if we all have different personalities, each of us come to school every day. Each of us get our work done. We're not distracting one another. We all worried about passing the grades. Like I literally had friends. I didn't come to school because I wasn't feeling well. They would send me the last day. They'd be like, we have to graduate, Alaya. Or if I'm having a bad day, my class three Jabbar, he'd be like, I could tell you a little down today. I just want you to know that everything will be okay, Alaya. Just get to graduation. Alaya remembers her first two years in ECA, one born in the isolation of the pandemic, then another refusing isolation from her Coolidge friends. She wanted the both and, her ECA friends and classes and the social connections she'd made with her Coolidge friends. Actually, when I speak about ninth grade, tip for you, I really just take out the whole ninth grade year because it was just virtual. Like, it was really just computer screens and Zoom calls. But when we entered our 10th grade year, I was the biggest complainer ever because, okay, I get we in this advanced program and I get where ECA students, but they separated us from the Coolidge kids and I just felt like they was rushing my life. Okay, I understand I'm going to be at Trinity next year, but can I at least have my high school experience now because I only get one high school experience. They made it so our lunch was separated from theirs. For homecoming, we wasn't really allowed to go to any activities because during those activities, we, we had class. So I used to complain to our AP, our director, Ms. Savage, the principal every day. And I'm like, please change. Just give me my high school experience because I'm not going to be able to have it next year. And the moment they changed it, I was so mad. I went right back and said, please change it back. Please change it back. Please. It's too chaotic here. And they would not change it back. They was like, you wanted this? And I was like, no, I do not. Please. I get why y'all separated us. No, I cannot take it. So when we was able to go to Trinity and the isolation we had, I really appreciated it. Like I tell my mom this all the time. If I wasn't at Trinity and I wasn't isolated, don't get me wrong. I love the people in my class. And I have friends at Coolidge that I really uh, love them. 
but sometimes being a part makes me benefit way better because I'm, I don't know how to explain it. My, my mindset is different. I have to be around students that want the same thing as me because it pushed me to go stronger and better. And not saying that Coolidge kids does not want to be successful. It's just they're not mentally pushed to it. So when we was at Trinity, I loved that I was isolated. I loved that we was given so much freedom. I could go to Coolidge when I wanted to, and I could chill and hang with them during my free time. But when it came to business, I was able to get all my work done. So that was my temporary experience by being in the building. And this is where it gets messy. Alea says, give me my high school experience. She wants the homecoming, the pep rallies, the social connections she's made long before ECA. And she wants her classes to be spaces of learning. Let's run that back for a minute. And not saying that Coolidge kids does not want to be successful. It's just they're not mentally pushed to it. Alea is making an incisive observation here. It's not that her peers don't want to learn or aren't smart or can't do the ECA work. She's observing the environment and expectations created with and for students and the implications of an environment like ECA. We hear her asking, how are the grown folks in these students' lives co-creating learning spaces where the school students, who are largely African-American and Latinx youth, are being engaged in building the presence and futures of their dreams? And she's able to ask and answer the question because she's being engaged in building her future in the present moment every single day. And which made me value being at Trinity more, being freedom. I love Trinity. I love how we're treated as college kids. We're not treated as normal 16 to 15 year olds. We're treated as we getting our diploma. And that's how I look for our degree. Yeah, I couldn't agree with Aaliyah more. It really was about like finding the, the, that group of kids that's going to stimulate your same um, mindset and ideas and goals and ambitions. For Kyrie and Aaliyah, pleasure is tied up in their learning. Being at Trinity, being in a community of learners means that they are able to find pleasure in learning, in making mistakes. In being in a community of learners, they're able to persevere, to take classes that challenge them intellectually and socially because of the community they're in. I personally think success is is more of perseverance than um, 100% being accurate or being the most excelling student. I'm, I'm going to keep referring to, I guess, this forensic science class because it has been my most difficult experience with Trinity. But at the same time, it's been a, a, a growth opportunity and just uh, like understanding where I could, I guess, grow. My intended major is computer science, but my friends, they wanted to do biology. And I'm, I'm kind of like a, I guess, a team player. I will go with um, how my friends kind of operate. And so I, I joined the class because I didn't know really any other classes to join at the time. Once I started notice I, I wasn't getting those same grades or same highs that I was feeling before uh, forensic science, I, I kind of did get into a, like a letdown because it was like, oh no, Carrie, what are you doing? And then eventually me and my friends, we all had to pick each other back up and continue to put our best foot forward, even though we might not see like the 100% accuracy that we were aiming for. Some tests, I, I did not do my best, I will admit. 
some tests, I, I just had complete confusion. But despite of we like we were all inside the same like mindset to just keep going regardless of like what the outcome may have been. I personally kind of follow the motto, it is what it is. And also, I'm not sure if you know the, the movie Meet the Robinsons, but keep moving forward. I like that uh, motto as well. It's just a reminder of like, despite what happened, you always have the future. You always, always have tomorrow. You can, you know, make it up then. Or if it's not something that you really need to make up, then you can just do better on the next challenge, the next obstacle. That was great, Gary. Um, Success to me is knowing that I did everything I could have done to get where I want to be. I don't define success as driving the prettiest car, having the biggest house, or having the most money. I define success as knowing that I did everything I put my mind to. I didn't lack in nothing. I worked my hardest to know that where I want to be is because of my hard work. Eventually, one day, I hope... I get to the point in life where I can really sit back and look at all of my accomplishments and I could just sit back and be proud of myself because I didn't lack at nothing. I worked hardest. I put my best forward. And I know that this is all my hard work. Eventually, my goal in life is to really set generational wealth because I know that everything that I do today will make an effect to my future. School is a major character in their lives. Sometimes a main character, other times a supporting role. School is that girl. She could take up all the space when it comes to tests, quizzes, and assignments. But when it's in the background, other things can move center stage. My pleasure as a man will be cheering. I love cheering. So many times I really wanted to quit. But I really can't because I love it so much. Like, it becomes a little overwhelming sometimes because, for instance, Monday. So on Monday, I went to Coolidge. Mind you, we on break. And I went to Coolidge during the daytime. And one of my quizzes for one of my classes was due Monday night at 11.59. Okay, this is my fault because I knew for a whole week that my quiz was due on Monday night at 11.59. So my plan was to go to Coolidge before the game and complete the quiz before the game. But when I got to Coolidge, I realized I left my charger at home. I tried to ask a Coolidge teacher for a laptop so I could get the quiz done because all in my mind is I know I need to get this quiz done before the game. And this quiz is also a quiz that when I start it, I have to complete it during that time or I can't go back to it. So I finally get a computer from a teacher and as I go to do the quiz I'm getting distracted by kids from every which way so I don't even start the quiz so it's time for the cheerleaders to meet up to leave and get on the bus and I'm just like oh my goodness this quiz I gotta do the quiz so my cheer team is divided by two teams and one team cheer for the girls and one team cheer for the boys so for this day I knew that I had to cheer for the girls so I was like okay I'm a little bit good so by the time the girls' game is over, I could go home and I'll still have time to complete the quiz before 11.59. So we were still waiting for the bus. And our coach come to my team. My coach said, hey, I decided that y'all team is going to cheer for the boys tonight. <laughs> and the other team going to cheer for the girls. And I'm like, please, no, please. And she's like, yeah, we have to do it this way. So I'm like, oh, my goodness. So to make a long story short, 
during the game, I'm asking the kids in the student section, what time is it? What time is it? What time is it? And they keep pausing the clock. I'm like, please let this game go. I have to do this quiz. I text my mom at halftime. I'm like, be outside as soon as this game over because we got to go. We got to go. So as soon as the game over, I don't even change out my uniform. I just run to my mom's car. If you could tell in my voice, I'm just recovering from a cold. I think this is really where I got sick from. But as soon as the game over, I clap it up for my team for winning, and I just run straight out the gym and head to the car, and it's like 9.50. So I knew I had an hour and some change, and the quiz had 35 questions. And it's child psychology, so the questions are not easy. So I knew it was going to require some referring back to my notes. I was like, God, just be on my side. And I'm, well, I'm in the car, and I'm thinking about it. I'm like, this is my choices because, one, I been knew I had this quiz. And two, I could have just chose not to cheer. But I realized I really love cheering. So I have to make the sacrifices for something I love and for something I need. But to make a long story short, I ended up making it home and completing the quiz and actually passing the quiz. But that was just an example of my pleasure intertwining with my success, actually. I agree, because... While hers is cheerleading, mine is gaming. I define pleasure in a lot of ways. Anything that like kind of gives me positive endorphins and just I guess stimulates my mind, it's a good thing for me. Um, But I like gaming, and coming into this year, I've been struggling to find time to game and put my habits and hobbies first um, because the, the college work is very intense, and so. I've, I had to kind of find pleasures in other ways that isn't just gaming. And, and some of it is actually included in school. The break between classes, getting to talk amongst my friends, because we have, a, a, I think, an hour and 30 minutes usually for for lunch as a break. And so we, me and my friends, we often go out to get something to eat or, you know, we just... And if I can get on the game, I, I will, but it, it's mostly, I guess, completing my work after school, which I think my work is also a, a way for me to um, find enjoyment because I'm a math guy. I, I take calculus this um, semester and it was actually really enjoyable. I wouldn't say fun because it wasn't like, oh, I'm over here getting 100% every single quiz. But I was getting, you know, close to it. And so, like, finding that, like, I was actually being uh, good inside of the course was another, like, booster for me and kind of just gave me more courage to continue in any other classes that I might see myself, I guess, lacking a little bit. I guess that pushed to keep going as well. Because while I might have been struggling in one class, I was, like, boosted in another class. And, and so it was, it was very positive in that way as well pleasure of mine is to sleep and so uh, I would normally come home and just take a shower and go to bed but when we got into this program and it got it it got a little bit more intense I did not have that time to I guess just go to bed and go to sleep after school and so now free time after after classes it's kind of been shortened a lot because while you have to study you have to do the quizzes or the the homework and stuff like that so it's been a little bit more rigorous in trying to find 
I guess the, the pleasure in between all of that is a little bit more difficult than it was before. It's still been a, a nice experience. As Kyrie talks about pleasure, he mentions school or work connected to his classes 14 times. To borrow his words, it is indeed hard to find our pleasure when school demands our full attention, parking itself in our brains, on our calendars, and in the sightline of our lives. We hear both Kyrie and Alea grappling with pleasure and how pleasure is a practice that invites study, which means the work and workloads that students, in particular academically high achieving students like Kyrie and Alea are taking on, can present challenges to their mental health. This year alone has been my toughest year ever in life because at the beginning of this semester, I picked up on calculus, and calculus has been the hardest class ever, and it literally left me so depressed because I don't like feeling defeated. When we was introduced to it, I tried to get tutorers. I tried to go on YouTube, but it was literally nothing I could do that could help me with this course. I eventually passed. Finally, I'm so glad I passed this class. But at the beginning of this semester, by the looks of it, I was not passing. I remember telling myself, if I fail, that's okay. And I'm so mad that I had that mindset. But I just was at the breaking point. And my mom didn't quite understand why I was isolated in my room, why I was acting different or why I needed a break. Like, it was to the point that I had asked her to stay, stay home from school a couple of days, and she looked at me like, you don't never want to stay home. This weird. And it's because she's unaware. Like, she don't really take mental health as serious that it should, to be, t- should be taken as. And I had to have a conversation with her is that I understand that I, like, applied for this early college change. And I understand that the position I took upon us, but at the same time, I am only 17 and I am taking a grasp on a whole lot of work that I'm ready for, but I'm also preparing myself for. So it's a lot on a 17-year-old alone. So I think that that's something I would tell a lot of adults to pay attention to the mental health because it's very important and it plays a significant role and our college experience and our education level because it had me to the point that I didn't even want to go to school. But if it wasn't for my success, like I said at the beginning of this meeting, that's literally the only motivation I had. It's like, I got to make it to across that stage and I got to make it to the next point. Learning communities where educators foster relationships with and among young people, where they prioritize really getting to know each other, and where they engage students' vast funds of knowledge remain essential to pleasure in the classroom. In responding to who they are as humans desiring to learn, these communities where educators believe in their students' limitless possibilities and teach toward those possibilities are what Zaretta Hammond calls culturally responsive teaching. We we love Gloria Latson-Billings here. We're just talking about Zaretta Hammond today. She says, that this is important for young people and adults in learning spaces. The teaching strategies that I like are the teachers that pushes us 
to our best interest, that wants the best in us, that gets to know us as individuals and as a class. And you and Miss Reston both did great jobs at knowing our class individually, whereas our conversations wasn't more so we're talking to our professors. It was like conversations with relationships. Like we grew a relationship with one another where we could be vulnerable when there's actual confusion in the class where I could say, I don't understand what you're talking about. And you don't look at me like, well, I just said this. Or when there's days when you know that I'm being distracted and I'm not putting my best foot forward. And you could tell and you kind of like, Aleah's not on her best right now. So me and Alea and I see it. I love those teachers because them pushes me forward and pushes me to be best because I know that if you know I could be better than what I'm given, then I should be better than what I'm given. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Um, teachers who are going to give you and make you the most optimal self and, and the co- connections between teachers and students is, is more than important inside um, education and learning. So making sure that we come to school with the feeling that we are going to gain something that day, despite how we might feel about school, just knowing that we are there to learn is something that a student should have and something that the teacher should have. It would be like knowing your different students, knowing how this student operates versus another student operates is is very important. I do really believe that the relationship amongst a teacher and its students is really the most significant thing because we really had teachers that would just give us lectures and yeah he doing his job right and he getting the message across but it's just like are we really hearing him though and then we had teachers that lecturing us but conversating with us as well and we actually understand it because they're getting a point across where we understood. So when it comes down to the assignments and what we're supposed to do, I can refer back to that conversation. Actually, and um, I want to go to Ms. Rusum's class because she was actually very in touch with us as, as young individuals. She, she kind of got some of the slang and memos that we had going on. So it was kind of, I guess, more engaging that way. It's not just like she said, lectures and just a whole bunch of knowledge being fed to us. It's us actually understanding and interpreting that knowledge and and gaining that knowledge. So teachers that are able to engage. And with the relationship and the students is also beneficial as well, because like I said, with the mental health thing, again, when me and my teachers, they could tell that something's also wrong with my work ethic. They know that I'm a over beyond student so when I submit something that don't look like I did that off of a layer they know and if I tell them they more understand to know like yeah I know that my student is not capable of this and I understand that my student is going through things so they more understand it. I just really think the, the ones that do care is really a blessing and amazing as Alea says conversations with relationships center so much more than academic learning And yet this kind of relational practice is one students see as being necessary in order for the academic learning to take place. They aren't only learning writing or technology, 
but also about taking pleasure in the learning. In her book, Teaching to Transgress, Bell Hooks invites her friend, philosophy professor Ron Scapp, into conversation. There's a point in their back and forth when they begin to talk about how important it is for them to practice liberatory pedagogy. And a part of this is inviting students to think with them and enjoy the process, which overturns classroom hierarchies. Gap then reflects saying, quote, pleasure in the classroom is feared. If there is laughter, a reciprocal exchange may be taking place. To prove your academic seriousness, students should almost be dead, quiet, asleep, not up, excited, buzzing, lingering around the classroom, end quote. Hooks brings us home with her response. Quote, it is as though we are to imagine that knowledge is this rich, creamy pudding students should consume and be nourished by, but not that the process of gestation should also be pleasurable, end quote. Don't you just love Bell Hooks? I just love her. This is learning as care work, where care is felt in the discussions, the way students and teachers talk with each other. And that learning can mean that I get to bring my whole self with me, which requires we attend to each other. My intention is to center my practice on education for liberation. And I think every decision a teacher makes has an opportunity to be either liberating or oppressive, or maybe both. And that starts with me with the way classes are set up. And I don't know if Alain and Kyrie or Baylel feel this way, but it drives me crazy that every class at Trinity is set up in a lecture style. The assumption is that the learning is happening from the professor to the students, and then they're responding. And I just find that offensive and disappointing. So just physically to me, setting up a classroom so that in my um, classes that are not the one that Kyrie and Alea take, it's usually in a seminar style and students lead restorative justice circles. That's sort of a, a foundation of that class. So each week, a different student is leading our opening 30-minute activities. In their class, the physical setup becomes research teams. And then so they have a group of four or five people who are together. And, and when I think about classes, I think in each class, is there opportunities for students to talk to each other? So those are just some of the things. How about you, Belal? Yeah, you know, I've had such a unique teaching experience. I think for me personally, I've always kind of held tight to bell hooks talking about critical pedagogy and what does that look like? How is that applied and practiced? I specifically teach intercultural communications and I teach mostly young students of color. And I became so conscientious and aware of that very early on. And I thought, you know, I was attending mostly PWIs and I thought, well, what can I do to kind of specialize this educational experiences that allow for students to feel like I can come into this and feel free. Um, I want to feel like I can articulate myself the way that um, I'm comfortable with and represent myself and my identity, which I felt like was very a strong focal point in that course in the curriculum uh, throughout the semester was about our identity, how they are shaped and how the world perceives us and how we perceive the world because of that identity. So leading in the classroom, I think it was just really, really important for me to make that space feel comfortable as much as I possibly can. I wanted students to feel like you can be your honest selves. I want to see that self-expression because I think that that allows me as well as an instructor to be able to tie those elements into the instruction. And so I wanted to open that space up. I wanted to pull as much as I can from the students and trying to grasp maybe the things that they are familiar with 
and incorporate that into some working examples. I don't want to tell them um, what to think, but more or less how to think. And so it was just a really, really big piece and element in my course to make sure that not only was I instructing, but also to pull as much as I can from the students themselves, just asking them simple questions that we can draw connections from and walking alongside them, I think was just really rewarding because the ECA cohort that I had were just so involved, so engaged, so aware, you know, it just became so enjoyable to walk in this class because I just knew I was going to get something from them. So I knew what I could expect from them. And so I think we may have like a quiet understanding between each other, unspoken, I should say, understanding. Like, oh, I'll say something and then you'll give and we'll go back and forth and we'll make it as conversational as possible and try to break down some of these barriers that I think exist between you know, being a teacher and being a student, but I think we're creating an environment where we're interchanging, where equally they are teaching me and I am also a student. And in some type of assignments, let me know, like I was able to be vulnerable and comfortable. I spoke on a very controversial topic that many people disagreed on my answer but in this environment I felt I could say however I wanted to feel about it because I knew I was in a space where I felt comfortable that even if everyone was coming at my throat I still was going to stand and say it because I knew that I had someone that could back me up and with her conversations and engaging with me when I was turning my assignment she would give me feedback okay that was a very strong opinion but do you think you could find some more evidence that could support that? Or, oh, okay, Leah, I like that evidence, but have a better thesis. Like, them feedbacks just make me go even harder because I know that I was doing it for a purpose, and I knew that she was benefiting me, and it made the connection between us two very much better. Like, I could submit a paper, and even if it wasn't my best paper, I knew that whatever I got from that paper was going to make my next paper even better because I knew she was going to give me feedback that would have encouraged me to go even more stronger. And for Ms. Russell, when we got into her classroom, we did a communication course. When she said we could come at our best self, it literally was that. When we spoke to Ms. Russell, she literally, instead of most professors or professional people, they do a code switch and speak, okay, I got to speak like a professional person because that's my job. But she literally spoke to us as her natural self. It was never, no, I'm your teacher or the authority figure. It was, so we're going to talk about this today. We're just talking, and our conversations is literally like normal conversations. just made the conversations more comfortable because I could really be myself. But I knew when it came to the assignments, that my assignments, I couldn't talk as if we was having a conversation, but I understood it more because I was naturally in a natural environment. And that's how relationships grew with each one of them. Yeah, I agree. And you guys' teaching styles was very beneficial to the way class oriented and things like that. You guys were more engaged with students and, and created that space where we all could be comfortable sharing our ideas and things like that so us all knowing each other also created a little bit it kind of helped with that space as well 
but for like a college setting, I would say like at least at the beginning of the the class, I, I think it would be helpful for the students to get to know each other a little bit, maybe do a little icebreaker. So it, you can create that space. Professor Wilder, you did a great job with that as well, because I'm pretty sure that was day one. You had us write our names on the on the, the little folds and we got up and shared out just who we are and stuff like that. And so I think creating that environment where we could be free and just expressive and individuals is important to further connections with inside the class and inside the course. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, even though you may be the professor teaching, it, it, it's up to that student to have a takeaway. It's up to that student to, you know, actually grasp what, what you were trying to say. Like you said, Ms. Rusum, you want us to be asking the questions and, and us to, I guess, be interpreting the information on our own. I guess the goal with having that space and that freedom is that we're able to have those connections. And one thing to piggyback off of Kyrie, when he said about if we would have took this these courses with different classes, not our cohort, I still think we would have benefited because unlike my other classes, one thing that each of you guys did, y'all each made it so assignments was with peers like for Ms. Russell the group presentation we had to do and Ms. Wilder we would have to do them in class group work with our peers and it would have gave us chances to get to know other people and another thing I want to add on to with the relationship as well and the comfortable thing because one thing I will never forget that when I said Ms. Russell <laughs> be her natural self even when our class would be to the point where she could tell we're just not at it. She would literally tell us, okay, I don't want to ask questions. Y'all going to need this. So y'all going to have to do something because, and she'll just, just stare at us like, because y'all going to need this, but okay, we could go on. So that's something like, it's just very straightforward and it helps us. Like it, when I would hear that and I won't be focused, I'd be like, okay, wait, let me pay attention a little bit because I might do need this. So let me just pull out my notes and start taking notes because it just pushed me to go harder. We are sharing gratitude with Alea and Kyrie, two youth in DC, two high school students at Coolidge and at Trinity. We're also sending love to Bailu and Jill, their two professors who also really helped us shape the space as well, getting in touch with the youth, connecting us with them, and sending Beilu love as she preps her dissertation and graduate from Howard yes. University. Uh, go HU. There's so much hidden labor in putting together the episode, so we're grateful. Also want to give a shout out to... Amira, who wasn't able to join us because she was under the weather, but we know she wanted to be with us. And gratitude also to our transcription team, Michelle, Amber, Jennifer, Dr. Cooper, Kelly, and Kate for helping us to transcribe our third episode, Habits of Everyday Liberation. Thanks for helping us make our podcast more accessible. This podcast episode 
we drew heavily from Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks, but more specifically the conversation that she has with her friend Richard Scapp in Mm -hmm. chapter 10 of the book. What feels so important as we get into our own reflection and gratitude is when she shares that education is the practice of freedom isn't just about liberatory theory, it's about what that practice is in the classroom. That's hard because even as Alea and Kyrie and Jill and Beilul shared, liberatory practice is not necessarily going to be happening all the time in school. And we know that we as educators are a part of that mechanism. So I'm grateful for the conversation that we had that invited the messiness of liberatory practice. Yeah. Something like I'm thinking about as you're saying that is having freedom dreams for my students, for education, for young people, for educators, for ourselves. Then also what there is the day-to-day and the fact that I'm an elementary school educator teaching in an American context in the belly of the beast of it all. Wanting to think like really big systemically about what liberatory pedagogy can look like, but also what are the micro moves that are happening every day in my classroom that are liberatory in nature and are joyful, are meaning that kids are laughing, they're moving, they're dancing, they're playing. I can think of so many tiny moments that are happening that feel free in ways that maybe I didn't feel and I didn't feel with my students when I first became a teacher that do feel liberatory in the way that we're moving and are still happening in a space that is a classroom within a school. How do you configure that for yourself as someone who has rituals and routines that are creating room for both the dreaming, but also the doing while simultaneously you are not. Doing it with someone else, having a partner to think through, making shifts with felt really good for me this year. But I have both like a teaching partner in my classroom, but also a teaching partner that I'm working with beyond my classroom who I've been able to think with. I guess we feel accountable to each other to be like, let's try something different when I'm feeling risk averse and I'm like I don't know if we should try this they're like why not it's one lesson if it goes wrong kids will figure it out I can like get geeky about this but I read this book this summer Peter Lilliadal um he wrote this book building thinking classrooms it's a whole framework for math pedagogy and I've always tried to teach math through play but this year it's these tiny structural shifts my students are working every day in random groups of three at vertical whiteboards They have one marker in their group of three, and the person who has the marker is capturing the thinking of the group. They pass the marker to each other to ensure that they're both making and taking space for and with each other. They're like skipping and running across the room to get another problem from another board, or they're feeling stuck and they're like, I don't know. And they kind of just like look around the room because the thinking of everyone is, is vertical. It's on the walls. And so they look around the room and Think, well, what's someone else trying? Let's go talk to them and see if that might give us an idea. They're talking and thinking and laughing and playing with math. It doesn't feel like something that is anxious. A student came in and was like, I used to walk in and see math on the schedule and get nervous. And now I walk in and I see math on the schedule. And I'm, I'm so excited. These tiny moves, like they're so small. But what it's meant is that students feel like accountable to each other. In their small group of three, they feel accountable to really listening to each other. Because if I have the marker, I have to really capture the thinking of my friends. And Mm. um, I want to make sure I really understand my friends. We're going to move at the speed of our group. What it's meant in my room has been a freeing for kids and a flattening of hierarchies that can exist in math too, around who knows a thing or who gets to share their thinking or who's whose ideas are centered or whose strategies matter. 
it's removed this idea of being right. It's just really joyful. It also feels profound in the smallness. Yeah. What I hear you getting at is also about finding pleasure in a thing. And you and I have talked about your own struggles with math. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've shared mine too. And how do we also not pass down our own orientations? And what I love about what you just shared is in some ways, like you representing and representing math as this act of pleasure and community in your classroom is also changing your own orientation toward math. Right. What I hear you doing is like, there's so much sweetness. It's like, how do I undo the relationship with math that feels like we're beating the, yeah. the curriculum and actually say, I don't have to have all the answers as the teacher. No one student has to know that communally is how we learn, period, in this space. Like this idea that we're passing around a marker. I don't know if you saw my face, but I was like, what, doing math in a marker? <laughs> I know. <laughs> which, which I just think is is like, what? But also very cool. Um, Yes to doing math in pens and markers. Colored- hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Because it's a whiteboard marker, right? It's like reducing some risk because it's not permanent. There's nothing to turn in. Let me just try. Let me play with it. I can draft. Alea and Kyrie, they were kind mm. of getting us there too. That for them, when they said like the kind of learning that they love best, the kind of teaching that is most effective for them is when they are doing something with others. And if I can't do this, I know there's someone with me who's going to carry me for a little bit. There's a lot of love and accountability when we have a shared purpose. And it seems that that for Jill and Belal too, that's when they were finding pleasure in their learning. Mm -hmm. It's not Mm -hmm. just that students learn, but teachers are also, there's a co-shaping. When you were talking about students moving around the classroom, I was just thinking about student bodies. And so many times, whether it's in college or in like a secondary classroom, students are are really sitting down and how that becomes the representation of what learning looks like and what a good student looks like. Mm. They're sitting down, they're quiet. I, I think it has brought up the other question for me is what creates or what co-creates freedom mm. in the classroom? This pressure that is on students, but it's also on teachers to be like, if they don't pass my class, if if they don't do all these assessments, if they don't get these grades, then then they might not get to a place of graduation. And this pressure of time and a timeline, given all of that, how did you land in a place then where you were able to practice in a way that would make a classroom feel open? It goes back to something you said earlier, which is doing with, making the decision that we're doing with. And then the orientation of the classroom is youth. Participatory action research, it doesn't say adults, it's youth. And the orientation of that model is that youth make the decisions. But I think gradually throughout the semester, we've constantly asked them what they think. Um, One of the students had an idea, going to see a movie. Yes, that sounds like so much fun. And we paused. There was a, a moment when we as the adults in the room, we could have just kind of laughed it off and kept it moving, but we took it up and we offered it back to students and they had a discussion. And so now we're actually going to go to a movie theater and they're going to do research. Even as somebody who says, I I listen, adult supremacy is real. And there's ways that the inheritance of the classroom already conditions us to not listen. Or as bell hooks would say, that there are specific spatial and, and pedagogical orientations that allow us to recognize each other's presence. I love it when she says we can't sleepwalk our way to knowledge. In that space, this is a this is learning for myself and the co-teacher too, because if we say that we're centering youth decision making, youth brilliance, youth observation, 
use ways of doing and being, then we gotta. There was a zine project and they developed the rubric for it. Let me be very clear in saying that the rubric that they developed would not be the rubric I would have. But let me tell you something. It's theirs. It's not mine. What students came up with was far better. Uh Far better. Uh And they did far better on the zine project because in many ways they created it, not us. Why should it look like I wanted it to look If in some ways their target audience are their community members, there's a lot of freedom. And then there's a lot that that myself and the co-teacher and students, because students, I think, are doing labor to get us to also listen to them, too. That allows us to build relationships with each other so that they can be honest. When myself and the co-teacher meet, we talk about those things and we talk about how do we honor that or how do we address that or we're concerned about so-and-so. How do we make space for the student to get what they need and want? And what Mm -hmm. I've really appreciated is also being able to witness my co-teacher, how she moves and how do Mm -hmm. I honor those ways that she's moving and talking with students. So it's rare that she answers a question. Usually she's asking them another question (laughs) that ends with, what do you think? That's also a way of refusing the sleepwalk. I love how you're putting this a path to pleasure for educators and spaces is relinquishing that control. This rubric is not the rubric I would have created. These zines are not the zines I would have created. So as you're saying this, it's it's making me think of that the relinquishing of control, that disrupting of adult supremacy that's in us, especially enacted in our roles as educators. Is that possibly also a path to our own pleasures as educators and to the way we get to experience it in our classrooms too? Because we're inviting it to be done communally. Mm-hmm. Come on now, Erin. There's a a podcast I was listening to. My friend Ev sent it to me. And it's my Leak Teal podcast number 174. Okay, what was it about? It's called Let It Be Easy. (laughs) Oh, this sounds a little bit, a little too close. Reducing the Addiction to Struggle. No! (laughs) That's the name of the episode. Mm Mm-hmm. It becomes easy because guess what? They have ideas about how it's going to work because guess whose bodies are moving? Theirs. And we have enough class time for them to complete the things. There's really no homework in the class because the homework is you being in community with your family, your neighbors, your basketball game, with your volleyball homies, dancing, whatever it is that you do outside of the class. Like that's really important. Alea and Kyrie. When they said, give me my high school experience, youth are telling us what they need and want. We get to make so many mistakes that our administrators don't see, that sometimes our students don't know. And so how can we offer everybody who we share space with in and outside of school the grace, the surrender to make mistakes, to know that they'll be there and that the pleasure is actually in making the mistake. At some point in the future, you'll get it right, but make the mistake. Don't rush your life. Let pleasure find its way through. Well, we thank you all for listening and for being with us. If you'd like to talk back to us, be in community with us, share your own thoughts, you can hit us up at Dancing on Desks on our Instagram. Or you can send us an email at us at dancingondesks.org. Or head to our website at dancingondesks.org where you can listen to all of the episodes we've had in our first three seasons. We love y'all. We love y'all. I love you, Erin. I love you too. Peace. Dancing on Desks is a podcast created by us, storytellers and educators, Monet Cooper and Erin Thiesing. Our loves, Mara Johnson and Elliot Wilkes, created our theme music. Today's production could not have ever, never happened 
without our hive mind. So much gratitude to them. Check out your Dancing on Desks fam online at dancingondesks.org. You can leave us an audio note wherever you listen to podcasts. And find us on Instagram at Dancing on Desks. And share your stories with us there. Talk with you soon.